are here in the 11FS office in WeWork Devonshire Square in London for episode 75 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you AWS launches a managed blockchain service, NASDAQ continue to pursue Bitcoin futures, and Floyd Mayweather and DJ Khaled do a thing or a thing happens to them. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. Alrighty, I'm Simon Taylor and I'm joined by, well, not Colin, but Anthony Macy. Anthony Macy, how are you, sir? I'm very well, um, thanks. Uh, I think Colin's probably rioting in Paris at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> Colin's keeping, staying busy. I think they're uh, probably uh, rioting because Colin did, is in France, right? That was, that, that, that was that what it was all reason, about. Yeah. That was what it was all about. Um, so how are you, sir? You're back in the land of the Barclays. Uh, you're enjoying yourself. Uh, the world of crypto stays ever more interesting. The world of DLT is starting to happen, eh? Absolutely. I, I think um, it's interesting. I'm looking forward to what comes next. It's great to see the massive price drop. It's a roller coaster of emotions and a roller coaster of news. Um, and the first story comes from actually the BBC themselves. Floyd Mayweather and DJ Khaled pay SEC cryptocurrency penalties. So the US financial regulator has said the men failed to disclose payments they received to promote certain cryptocurrency investments. The men neither admitted or denied the claims, but agreed to pay the combined penalties totaling more than $750,000. Hmm. The SEC said Mr. Mayweather received $300,000 to promote three separate offerings, including one by Centratech. Shout out to Colin G. Platt, who is the proud owner of a Centratech t-shirt. Um, <laughs> a post on Mayweather's Instagram account predicted he would make a large amount of money on another ICO and post it to Twitter. And it said, apparently, you can call me Floyd Crypto Mayweather from now on. Celebrities endorsing ICOs, was it, I mean, was this just obvious? Was this always going to go to the wall? Yeah, it's always going to be a problem. I mean, you just need to see what happens in the traditional markets when Elon Musk made some of those comments on Twitter and he was kind of rightfully pursued for that. And I think um, any celebrity that thinks they could just make a quick buck by shilling scams probably going to end up yeah. in issues. It's it's interesting how uh, different it feels now to a year ago, but how there were so many voices that have been saying for a year, don't do this, people, and, uh, and now it's come around the other way. Uh, but it, it strikes me almost as the voices that a year ago sounded like the alarmists now sound like the optimists. So, because it, it, I don't know about you, but I still feel like in the world of blockchain DLT and indeed tokenizing assets, there's a whole load of value, even though the market has almost gone the opposite way. The hype has now gone yeah absolutely i mean i i don't want to say that i feel sorry for celebrities because i don't but i mean <laughs> when you look at these people i think when you're used to doing product endorsements they're probably not astute enough to make that differentiation so when it comes to we'll give you three hundred thousand dollars if you do this thing for us how in their mind is that any different to you know supporting a sports label or something similar? I think that or Ciroc vodka, for instance, and putting that on your cereal, as I... DJ Khaled did live on YouTube. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Mm -hmm. um, being a massive DJ Khaled fan myself, um, <laughs> I must have missed that video. But when reached for comment, DJ Khaled simply said, "DJ Khaled." Uh, that is a good comment. <laughs> good comment. Not as good as winning, but um, okay. Um, in regards to you know the the hype. I think the issue that we've had for a good few years now, and I remember kind of sat around with yourself and various other people going, oh, it must it must die this year, it must die this year, and it didn't, it just got worse and worse in regard to this kind of pump and this bubble, is that you can no longer just make money from 
issuing nonsense, you actually have to have a viable business model now. Crazy. Um, and I think, I, exactly. So I think um, what we'll start to see now is, you know, the, the good old trial disillusionment. We've all seen the Gartner hype curve. But um, I think what we're going to see now is, is people trying to raise money, really struggling because, you know, they can no longer pump a load of tokens into the public domain and get people to buy them. And instead, they're actually going to need something viable that will actually make sense. Raising money product. should be hard, though, right? It Absolutely. shouldn't be for everybody. There shouldn't be people hunting out money on street corners. You shouldn't be able to make up your own coin, become a multimillionaire, and offer the no tangible value to the world. Like, that just breaks the laws of the universe, <laughs> surely. <laughs> well, I, I think um, the, the laws of the universe get broken every so often, especially when there's something new and innovative. It's happened before, and it'll happen again. Um, I think people get excited and they don't want to miss out, so they throw money at things they don't Almost understand. Almost a thing, but the uh, the the regulators are coming, and and so is the United States uh, Department for Justice. Apparently, a cryptocurrency CEO has been indicted after defrauding investors of more than four million, and this actually comes from Justice.gov, which, as URLs go great url you would not mess with that url um so a rise bank ceo jared rice senior was arrested by the fbi on wednesday charged with duping hundreds of investors out of more than four million dollars in a cryptocurrency scheme mr rice was indicted on three counts of securities fraud and three counts of wire fraud he allegedly lied to the would-be investors claiming that a rise bank which he built as the world's first decentralized banking platform based on a proprietary digital currency called a rise coin could offer consumers fdi insured accounts uh, traditional banking services including a visa brand debit and credit card and in addition to cryptocurrency services in actuality, they'd not been authorized to conduct banking in Texas. They were not FDI insured, and they did not have any sort of partnership with Visa. Good. <laughs> Shall we move on? <laughs> there's an interesting thing here to me that, like, there's been a whole, there was this spate of people sort of saying, we'll be a bank and we'll do crypto and we'll do it all on crypto and be a bank, but better banks. It was like challenger banks, but for crypto, were going to be a thing. Um, and then Visa kicked a bunch of them off their network for not being you know, properly licensed and for not having followed the routes um, that, that you might wish to. And yet the, there seems to be a bunch of people like people believe in that use case. I don't know that that offers any real tangible benefit to the consumer over and above what Robinhood or Revolut do, which is the ability to hold and buy and sell crypto. Yeah, I mean, uh, this kind of goes to, and, and not to shill 11FS, but, you know, it kind of goes to the 11FS motto around, you know, digitization. You, you don't want to digitize existing processes. If you want something that is a digital bank, you need to rethink those processes and reinvent what you're actually trying to do. I think what is interesting about this story is, um, there are two precedents being set here in regards to someone actually being charged for stuff. So securities fraud, you know, that's quite a bold statement. This is actual securities fraud. So they're saying, you know, you have fraudulently issued securities here and that's the way we're going to treat this. But also wire fraud, which is another interesting one, um, you know, effectively taking money over electronic channels in order to defraud a customer. I wonder how much of... Um, the certainly the ICO market, but in general, the crypto market will fall foul of those rules because there is no other way of really getting your money into the market unless you're local Bitcoining it and on a street corner with a bag of cash. I think there was unfortunately a view uh, that having done some basic KYC due diligence was going to make you compliant when actually getting compliant in financial services is hard. Um, and if you get a load of money, you make yourself a target. Uh, what you probably want to do is start small and work your way up rather than uh, start absolutely massive.
And I think that's what the regulators are doing here, because it's probably easier to indict and prosecute an individual who raised $4 million than maybe some of the bigger projects out there. Yeah. So it's easy for them to start to establish a legal precedent yeah. up front with some of these smaller cases where they're less able to defend themselves. So when they get to the large cases with the much more um, robust legal counsel, they'll already have those legal precedents in place to say this is the same thing. And also it's harder to build a case against a larger organisation with more lawyers, um, which is often the challenge. Next story comes from Bloomberg. Uh, NASDAQ apparently continued to pursue uh, Bitcoin futures despite plunging prices, sources say. So they're moving ahead, um, betting on sustained interest despite the dramatic plunge in prices over the last year. Um, they've been working to satisfy the concerns of uh, the US's main swaps regulator, the CFTC, before launching the contract. So a couple of things going on here. One, NASDAQ are plowing. Two, um, they got to satisfy the CFTC. And we saw um, there was the new association, I think it was called ADAM, um, the association... DAM, whatever that, Digital Asset Management, um, Galaxy Digital were in there, I think Gemini, a few others, and their specific mission is to have a code of conduct around um, managing uh, the concerns that the CFTC raised around there is no mechanism for managing the risk of market manipulation across Bitcoin, and there's a lack of information sharing generally coming from some of the largest trading venues in the market. Uh, it's interesting that NASDAQ, of all people, are working really hard to allay the fears of the regulator there. Yeah, so I, th I think um, what, what this speaks to is, I think it's quite a bold move by NASDAQ, but for a different reason, maybe. Um, it's very, very easy to argue for a new product or a new service in a bull market. So, you know, when the price was up and everyone was like, yeah, crypto, um, I think it was probably very easy for NASDAQ to make the case. But if the only way you were able to make that case was because of the value of crypto, then you probably didn't have a very robust case mm -hmm. in the first place. This says to me that maybe they have something a little bit more. There's something more tangible. So they can argue the case, not just in the bull market, but a bear market as well. Um, so it'd be interesting to understand where NASDAQ's thinking is here. Indeed. Uh, so there was a stat I saw over the weekend, um, and I'll try and dig it out for listeners. That stat basically goes along the lines of, uh, whilst the price has massively decreased in the last year, trading value and volume is actually up. Uh, net net. So uh, you're seeing an increase of trading activity, of and, theref and therefore a, an exchange venue makes its money from trading activity, not from the price necessarily. They they sometimes do, but the their natural interest is towards increased volume of transactions, uh, and that's what appears to be what's happening. And a large organization like that could probably do more to allay the fears of regulators uh, than uh, an incumbent brand new organization might. And it certainly brings uh, a brand into the space. But they're coming into a crowded space. There, there are others offering Bitcoin futures out there. So it's going to be interesting to watch what happens with this one. Um, but it certainly is a big brand coming into the space. Alrighty, next story comes from CNBC. Uh, and this is behind Coinbase's quiet rollout of OTC, or over-the-counter, crypto trading this past month. Um, so they uh, rolled out a desk, um, a trading desk over the past month, but until now it's been hesitant to openly discuss those ambitions. Uh, Tim Palakas, who's the head of the OTC trades for Coinbase, said, we wanted to make sure we had all of the boxes checked before we went public. We needed to have some of our trusted institutional clients on board. We're in beta mode to make sure that the pipes were working. Makes a lot of sense that somebody with a lot of um, crypto lying around would open a desk, surely. Yeah, I guess so. I think um, you know it also makes sense for places like Coinbase to be broadening their overall business model, so they're not focused on just one area of revenue generation. So it's you know it's probably a smart strategic move from 
a revenue perspective. Um, it'll be interesting to see what that looks like in the eyes of the regulators, et cetera. But, you know, I guess time will tell. I'd be surprised if others don't follow. Yeah, and, and for those unfamiliar, of course, over-the-counter trading is done directly between two parties, not on an exchange. So you wouldn't be using GDAX. They are simply um, trading one-to-one with um, the institutional counterparties. Um, they have uh, sort of did a soft launch with a small network of clients, like asset, um, like asset management firms, apparently. Um, they said, um, but they're not trying to blanket the earth with the new product. Um, and... Basically, they can deal in much larger value and volume trades uh, with, with an OTC desk than you would expect. Um, but there are competitors, right? Um, the Goldman Sachs-backed Circle, um, they have a principal OTC desk called Circle Trade, um, as well as Genesis Trading, um, and founded by the Winklevite twins. Um, and there's a few others as well. Um, trying to think of the other one drw cumberland have a have a desk so it seems to be that a that's where the money was made and b that's where the institutional side had gotten into crypto was via the desks um and see where a lot of the regulated um, bodies were it could be interesting to see how this story links to the last one how the otc desks and nasdaq start to come together to build a bit of um institutional grade infrastructure um but will that look like existing infrastructure will they digitize or will it be truly digital that's that remains to be seen Alrighty, this episode is brought to you by R3 Blockchain, not just for financial services. Tons of industries can reap major benefits, including insurance, healthcare, pharma, automotive, you name it. Discover the potential of blockchain for your business with R3's Corda platform. R3's Corda platform offers privacy, interoperability, integration, and consensus. Plus, it includes the mission-critical features every complex business needs, including the world's only blockchain application firewall, um, the Corda platform. Blockchain for every business and every industry. Head over to r3.com to learn more. I really wish they called the blockchain application firewall the Gendel firewall. (laughs) (laughs) The Gendel firestorm. Yeah, that that would sell better, Mm, right? Something that sounds very Lord of the Ringsy. Or would it be the Hearn firewall? No, Gendel sounds better. Gendel sounds better. It sounds more Middle Earth. It does, yeah. MiddleEarthGendel.com. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to buy that URL. Alrighty. Um, next story comes from TechCrunch. Uh, Amazon Web Services launch a managed blockchain service. Um, and it supports Ethereum and Hyperledger Fabric. AWS promises the service will scale to thousands of applications and will allow users to run millions of transactions. Uh, the uh, AWS CEO, Andy Jassy, uh, that's a Jassy name, said, when we heard people saying blockchain, we felt like there was a weird convoluting and conflating of what they really wanted. As we spent time working with customers and figuring out the jobs they were really trying to solve, uh, this is what we think people are trying to do with blockchain. So they've they've built uh, blockchain as a service, but there's a couple of interesting bits in there because we saw Microsoft for some time has had an offering along those lines as well, where they've not just gone, here's some here's some Azure cloud, but also here's some tools to help you build the, the product with, as you might expect. Yeah, so I, I think um, I, I've only had a chance to look at this briefly, but my understanding of what AWS is doing is slightly different to Azure. Azure, to my mind, are trying to build, you know, this kind of application center where you can run lots of different types of blockchain software. Whereas AWS, it's, it's more of a land grab. It's more a case of you're looking for this specific functionality we're going to help assist you by giving you that functionality. By the way, you don't need a blockchain. It's distributed. It's cloud-based. You're getting all of the bits of value that you want without any of the kind of downside problems that you're having with launching your own blockchain technology. I think it's a very, very smart move by AWS. Um, I think that 
The vast majority of blockchain POCs and pilots have probably been done in AWS. Um, maybe stuff done on Hyperledger is an exception for obvious reasons, <laughs> but um, I would dare, dare say that most is in AWS cloud instances. So they've already got most of the stuff running in their cloud environment. So why not give the capability themselves? I really like the statement about figuring out the jobs they were really trying to solve. Mm. Uh, like if you go back to, um, again, uh, Gendel quotes coming to my mind, but what's the requirement, right? Yep. What's the job to be done? Then you might not need a blockchain to solve for that problem. The interesting thing is uh, for the first customer, like for the first customer in the first country, then yes, but the the challenge there's a real chicken and egg problem you get with most enterprise blockchains and all um, distributed blockchains, which is they only make sense when they're global and at scale. Before that, you could do it with any other technology, and you could do it within existing governance frameworks. But there are some things that just make a lot more sense when they're global um, and they they require that level of uh, scale. So I mean, I, I don't know if it necessarily needs to be global, but there certainly needs to be an element of scale, especially across kind of a community. So when I think about blockchains in general, whether it be the kind of future utopic tokenized world where, you know, everyone has their own token and you're able to interoperate with your neighbor um, versus <laughs> something that's a bit more kind of enterprise and centralized. Interoperating with your neighbor by saying, hello, yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> that, that would be a challenge for you, I guess. Uh, it depends. If they've got an API, we might be okay. But um, <laughs> So, I mean, I, I just think that, you know, the scale part is the important part there. And what it enables is the scalability of communities in the ways in which previously you used to be able to do that at a very local level up to maybe a couple of hundred people um, whereas blockchain theoretically enables you to be able to do that for communities that are much much larger across a larger geographic region it doesn't necessarily need to be global but it certainly needs to be large and i guess that's kind of your network scale point where aws may start to fall down is how they then bring those communities together to get that adoption of specific uses so they work in a in a where there is a centralized planner or organizer, that's when AWS is, is at its best, not so much when it's a bit more fragmented and peer-to-peer, -peer, but a blockchain is a nice backbone for fragmented peer-to-peer -peer communities that already exist. Absolutely, so for if you're an institution, this is probably gonna make a great deal of sense to you. Yeah. Um, if you're trying to build something that's far more permissionless, then probably not. Mm -hmm. Alrighty, let's keep watching this one. Story from Coindesk.com. Masari have opened their disclosure registry for crypto projects. The registry will share a range of typically non-public information, including token design, supply details, any technology audits, official communication channels, treasury management, and details of the team members. And I'm assuming it's not said it here, but any conflicts, potential conflicts of interest. Ryan Selkis, who's the CEO, said, what we're trying to do is make key information about these various crypto assets available to anybody, whether it's a retail investor, a regulator, an academic, or a mutual fund. I also said the most important thing for us is assuring in an era where that's the standard versus today's standard, which is driven by information asymmetry and insiders, where the last person to know about a change to a project is a casual observer. I think a lot of this comes down to the problems you've seen. Um, one with uh, kind of potential conflicts of interest, people being advisors to a million ICOs, and then also some of the actions you're seeing from some of the regulators. Disclosures can be one helpful step there, and, and some transparency is a good thing. Yeah, I think the, the issue with disclosures, and um, I guess it depends on reputation, if you're going to disclose to that extent, 
are you actually then adding value? So does it become a conflict, a conflict of interest almost through disclosure itself? So I think there's a double-edged sword when it comes to, for example, disclosing holding of crypto assets. Um, on the one hand, you know, it's good because it then shows whether or not you have a vested interest in supporting something specific. But on the other hand, it's almost an endorsement because you're holding them. Um, I, I wonder how much of this is more of a kind of upside sell from their perspective going, look, we, we support these projects. We trust them so much that we're going to open and um, open everything and make it all transparent. Uh, so people go, oh, yeah, good I project. think the intent here is positive. What, what I don't know that... Um Information transparency isn't a cure-all, um, mm. and actually, it can it can achieve the opposite to what you want in, in many cases. Um, but I think generally, uh, where information fits best in the public domain, that as a standard uh, is is something I would endorse. Um, and especially where uh, somebody is making a public offering of uh, tokens, in this case, maybe a maybe calling it a coin, but it's essentially an offering of a security, then. They, you would expect a whole series of disclosures with that, and you may even expect a prospectus. I guess this is the equivalent to that. What's interesting to me is it still feels a little bit digitized. It's like, come to our website, and you can read all of these disclosures. I know the technology behind it isn't intended to be that, and it would be queryable and searchable, and anybody could use it as a resource. I think that's a good thing, but I think it's got some steps to go. But generally... I <laughs> There's probably a lot more that needs to be done in addition to this. This is a great step in the right direction, and the guys at Masari are doing a lot in terms of sharing information. But I also think there's the piece about you know Adam and those guys and trying to manage market manipulation risk. There's um, all of the securities laws. There's there's a whole bunch of stuff. And then on top of that, there's and are there any of those processes the right process to begin with, or are you just complying to make the pain go away and not solving the problem you set out to solve in the first place? Oh, well, um, speaking of which, um, story comes from the Coinbase blog and also from Coindesk.com. Coinbase back a security token startup and their $12.7 million funding round. Led by blockchain capital, the equity investments were made to help the company bring on knowledgeable investors as it prepares for a security token offering. The CEO, Carlos Domingo, explained that the company wants to transition the securities industry, currently estimated at some $7 trillion, to decentralized ledgers as they are more transparent, auditable, and can facilitate instantaneous transactions. The company has already begun issuing digital securities for companies such as 22X, Spice VC, Augmate, as well as blockchain's own BCAP security token. Interesting that Coinbase are involved. Interesting that securities tokens are a thing. Yeah, I, I guess. I think... Um, you sound blown away with how awesome this is. Well, I just... I, I don't... It could be interesting. I think it's just too early to say that it's like massively interesting. A um, couple of people have got together, throwing some money into a thing in order to do a thing. Again, is this digitizing a paper process? Yeah. Is this making a paper process that already sucks a bit more shiny on the front end? Or have they started at the beginning of the life cycle here? At the very issuance of the asset, they're recording that on a blockchain. Then, in theory, that entire asset lifecycle could exist on a blockchain and could be serviced digitally and could become more global. And in theory as well, your transaction rules, either your basic in, um, unspent transaction output conditions and or your uh, kind of smart contract layer, 
would allow you to say, to build logic that bakes in things like compliance, bakes in things like audit checks, bakes in um, multi-signatures, multi-party signatures, bakes in updating a cap table. If you think about what most of the pain in financial services is, it's actually moving an asset. Because one, you've got to find out where it is. Two, you've got to find out the clean title. Three, you've got to update 15 different places at once. In theory, this would start to unpick that, but it's going to be a generational shift because there's a whole bunch of securities that were not issued as tokens that make up all of Microsoft shares and all of Facebook shares and all of houses in the world. So I don't disagree. I think that um, there are a lot of ifs, buts, and maybes in what you just said. And it's not just um, all of the stuff that's been previously issued that isn't on that register and need to be migrated. I imagine probably stuff for the next three to five years, maybe longer, would also need to be migrated because whatever it's put on now probably won't last the life cycle of an equity. I mean, when you think about the age of some companies and the equities issuance of those companies, you know, you, you need your platform to last longer than the next five, 10 years. It, it needs to be hundreds of years. Which links me to the next story. So Harbour uh, have launched their first securities offering with a sale of $20 million. Um, and so they are uh, $20 million uh, from 955 shares. Um, and Harbour are using the Ethereum blockchain. Um, they're partnering with Convexity Properties to introduce a more accessible and liquid form of real estate investment through the Harbour platform. Famously, of course, uh, Harbour are funded by A16Z. So there's a couple of things going on here. One, there's the entire real estate market and and just starting there. Um, Real estate, and especially like uh, commercial real estate, has been remarkably illiquid. Consumer investors, yes, you can get access to it through a fund that holds some funds, that holds a fund that has relationship with somebody that eventually holds uh, the the actual underlying security. I mean, I, I, perhaps in the UK, I think we've been quite funny about it here for a, a number of years, but real estate investment trusts have been around for a while in the US, right? They have, but they're slow and painful, and they are uh, costly. So they, they exist, and those trusts you know, do, a, do a fun job. The question for me would be, why are they slow? Why are they painful? Why are they costly? And how does this necessarily make it any easier? Again, so I, is- I don't buy the, let's just securitize real estate and everything will be fine. That caused the financial crisis. So, you know, we have to be careful about how easy we make it to make these transactions and these trades and leverage against that. So I think ease is one thing, uh, size is another. So risk is a is a calculation of uh, kind of exposure over time, right? So how exposed am I over what time period? And if I, if I can afford X and I invest uh, more than X, then, oh dear, I'm in trouble. Um, so, the, the key thing here is things like fractional ownership. Uh, to buy into a real estate investment in trust, I need to come in at a certain level. Right? Uh, I can. Th- there are then people that package investments in that on my behalf and hold a portfolio, but each of those intermediaries introduces cost. And because those intermediaries introduce cost, you see things like that in the cost of your pension or your 401k in the US, which now are essentially the same thing. Uh, and... The average fees when you look across the entire industry for a pension or a 401k is somewhere around 4%. Now, the cost of that 4% to you over the lifetime of your pension is around about half the value of your pension. So you could double the value of your pension simply by removing 1% of fees. And the things that, so all of that cost and all of that pain has a very clear business case in terms of doubling the the pool of assets in the world for all pension holders. Like that's a heck of a prize. Uh, But... 
the the thing you then need is not just to make the process of issuing the security easier. You need the process of not only issuing it, but then managing those tokens once they're created, having transparency about who holds those tokens. That was the real issue in the financial crisis, that we, we created a new uh, asset class that packaged lots of hundreds or if not thousands of contracts, which then packaged hundreds of thousands of contracts and packaged hundreds of thousands more. And nobody knew what the underlying asset was or who it was for and what its creditworthiness was because it was so opaque and the paper trail was a paper trail. I don't necessarily buy that. I think people did know. I mean, when you look at the, the assets, I think people just didn't bother to look. Um, there were people who did bother to look and they were the ones who saw the crisis coming. You can do the due diligence, but it it took time and it was drilling down into spreadsheets and it was checking other people's systems and it was waiting for them to reconcile. That was an extremely laborious process. And there was certainly no way the regulator could see into what was inside those assets. They, they Basically, that was one of their key risks, hence MIFID. So like that lack of transparency is a real issue. Uh, if the technology itself is designed to be able to provide that A to regulators, B to investors, and C makes it simpler to see all of that, then hopefully you can begin to mitigate some of those risks. But you have to build it in a way that does mitigate those risks. Absolutely. And I think the transparency in any system like this is going to be helpful from that point of view. But I think it then takes us full circle back to our original question around real estate investment trusts. Why do they have that barrier to entry? Is it purely around this idea of reconciliation of ownership? And if so, how does blockchain actually solve for that? So although you have that transparency and certainty of where the asset potentially is, um, how do you administer that? What, what kind of costs do you still have on top of that underlying system? Which is where a harbour comes in. They would say, well, our platform is super easy to use and super simple if you issue it over the top of it. Now, what I liked about Harbor um, and simp- uh, and then what the what's happening with the uh, Coinbase backing somebody who's who's issuing these securities is this is a real movement. You know, th- this appears to be where the action is. Um, these securities tokens are getting real investment, but also they're both backed by VCs. And to me, a VC is an obvious place to start when you're creating um, new pools of uh, equity that you would issue those as tokens rather than as just just as paper contracts. So it's going to be interesting to watch that for sure. Alrighty, stories we didn't have time to cover this week. Uh, first link comes from the block Crypto. Um, they uh, have a headline which is, In a tumultuous time for crypto, Galaxy Digital's third quarter was as ugly as you'd imagined. And I think we briefly covered this before, but uh, Galaxy Digital have lost a, uh, a lot of money in the markets, but they're in a bear market. I think we should have cover this one. Just because I think it's not Galaxy Digital alone, there's going to be a lot of people that are hurting a great deal at the moment where they've had a dependency on crypto assets. Funds generally, yeah. right? Funds are Not just it. funds, like anyone. Mm-hmm. Like anyone who's funded primarily by Bitcoin, Ether or any other crypto asset are suddenly going to find, well, actually our reserves aren't quite what they are. What do we do in this situation? The guys over at dr.co did a, do a really good um, interim check into um token treasuries um, and ICOs treasuries. Um, And it's interesting to see the mix that sort of hedged in fiat and therefore have a big war chest and those that didn't hedge in fiat and therefore are are looking quite lean at the moment. Um, And yes, you're right. I I do think generally if Mike Novogratz or the Winklevoss twins do a thing, it's a headline. Um, If something else happens that signal, um, like for instance, um, some of these more uh, less known stories like sort of the securities token stuff, eh, it's like story six or seven, nobody really pays attention. But actually, in five years, those are the ones that are going to matter far more. 
All right. Next story from Coindesk that we didn't have time to cover is an Abu Dhabi bank settles a $500 million bond on a blockchain. Um, we have seen quite a few do the bond on a blockchain thing. The real question is volume. Um, Cointelegraph also covered the Galaxy Digital loss. Um, Chainbits.com, Wabi launches a derivatives market. Um, and a story from Royce's fintech company, Callistone, to shift a fund network to blockchain. Um, that's going to be an interesting one to watch because Callistone are a big supplier in the funds management space. Alrighty, time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week comes from Marco Santori, who is M Santori ESQ on Twitter. Um, if you don't follow him, probably should. Um, so... Today, the U.S. Department of the Treasury, through the Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, took the historic step of adding two Bitcoin addresses to the list of sanctioned parties. In this thread, I'll break down what it means. Um, and he had a really good opening to it, which is new law alert, new law alert. Um, I guess... It was something that kind of made sense because we've seen people seize Bitcoin before. It, it's not a surprise that Bitcoin ends up in the OFAC list. I think what Marco's pointing out is if you are enforcing upon it, you're not saying it's entirely illegal in its entirety. It can continue to exist. We will just manage the law within it. Is there a surprise in that or is that like a no-brainer? Well, I think it's kind of obvious, right? Um, it, these people, they're not stupid people. They just take a while to make decisions around how they go about enforcing what they need to enforce. I mean, OFAC's probably one of the most important lists in the world, irrespective of it being quite US-centric. Um, I think most banks would kind of look at it and respond to it. The, the fact that they're adding Bitcoin addresses, I think, becomes a lot more complicated than it necessarily would be for other, other things that would put on that list. So, for example, if you've got a name, you have associated access for that name. Again, going back to a lot of the conversation we've had today around transparency, you don't necessarily have that direct transparency. However, if you've got a Bitcoin address that's on the OFAC list, what if someone touches that in any way, shape or form? Do they then become contaminated? So mm -hmm. how many degrees of separation do you need from an address on an OFAC list before you're clean? Or does everything that touches it suddenly become dirty? It's the interesting challenge about the Bitcoin blockchain is everything's there forever and everything's transparent. It's almost, uh, yeah, if you're 300 uh, hot transactions away, happy transacting in your own life but one of those contaminated bits of bitcoin came into your wallet who's liable and can that be seized it's an interesting question and of course if you're not familiar with the ofac list this is how the us manages the list of sanctions individuals and or legal entities um, such as um, if you see them putting sanctions on countries such as uh, iran or russia then they will name individuals and put them on the ofac list but an address is a different beast to a name, as, yes. as you were saying. Uh, it's an interesting challenge. There is also, of course, the uh, the typical Bitcoin reaction of um, get your hands off my damn Bitcoin, take them out of my cold dead hands, uh, here's my gun and here's my ranch sort of thing that, that's not going to be liked by this. Um, but I guess this is playing at a different level. I was at a, an event a couple of weeks ago with um, the Financial Action Task Force, FATF, and of course, somebody from uh, Europol who headed up some of the um, policy around uh, financial crime. And they were saying they are seeing a massive increase in activity across uh, crypto from state-sponsored, but also more general. Um, it's not just ransomware anymore. Uh, it's a lot of people using cybercrime. Um, so if somebody's uh, doing a hack, then typically the payments are all happening in crypto these days. They're not being done in duffel bags with cash. 
And so uh, this is a real concern, those giant hacks that you see on large companies. There's a direct link between those and some of the uh, obfuscation ways that you can manage crypto. So if, if law enforcement wants to combat that, it has to, has to manage some of these issues. And it doesn't surprise me that this stuff is happening. No, absolutely. And I, I imagine that there'd have been quite a rigorous process before they decided on those addresses. It's only two. It seems very, very specific. And as you can generate a new address you know, pretty much as much as you want, um, it, it kind of seems almost irrelevant that there are those two addresses. So they must have a very clear reason for putting them on the list. I've not had a look, but um, there, mu- there must be some sort of association that they decided was pertinent enough and that those addresses were well known enough um, by nefarious actors for them to state that this is the case. In regards to the the Bitcoin and kind of crypto maximalist, you know, you, you can't touch it, censorship resistance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think what we've seen over the past couple of years, especially with uh, price increases where people have been held to ransom, literally at gunpoint, in order to have um, their private keys stolen, or they've had um, assets seized by authorities in the same way, um, it's kind of maybe not as secure and restricted as you think you are. You can be your own bank as much as you want to be um, until you can't. Well, until you get your own bank robbers. Yeah. Uh, indeed. Alrighty. Uh, just to remind you listeners, this podcast is made by 11FS. We're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. If you want to see an example of our work, head to metal, M-E-T-T-L-E.co.uk, uh, and we're doing much, much more. And if you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, well, the subscribe button is like right there. Um, if you're already subscribed, throw us a review and you might want to give us five stars because, my goodness, Anthony Macy is starting to look like Santa Claus himself. Um, um, it's really true. It's quite scary. Um, where can people find out more about you, Santa Macy? Um, on Twitter, probably, although I never use it. But you can find me there or LinkedIn. But I only add you if I've met you in person. So basically, no, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A good PR moment. That's, thanks. That, that's exactly what we need. All right. Uh, big thanks, of course, to uh, the team here at 11FS, uh, producer Petrit, uh, producer Laura, uh, and of course, Alex, our editor. And thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye for now.